0: The Guardian.
1: Would you like to unlock the secrets of great science writing? Science writers actually have to find a way of converting very complex ideas into something the rest of the world can understand. Well, the great science writer Tim Radford can help you do just that. I'll tell you more after the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show... Why You Won't Be Hearing That Song on Radio 1 anytime soon. Plus, a taxing time for the way the BBC pays some of its biggest stars. And Sophie Grobble talks to Vicky Frost to of the new series of The Killing on BBC4.
0: It's not just like slipping into the old jumper and there it all is. And it shouldn't be, really.
1: This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined for the first part of the show by Peter Robinson, music journalist and founder of the Pop Justice website... And Trevor Dan, independent radio producer and
2: former head of music at Radio One. Peter, what's top of your playlist right now? There's a Scandinavian singer called Bertine Zetlitz who just released an EP, which is very good. I've been listening to the One Direction album, which is precisely half good and half bad. And uh, the new Lana Del Rey album, oh, well, which has been reissued, so I'm listening to that. I've heard of two of
1: those three people, so it's more than I thought, so I feel
3: good about myself. I um, can top that. I'm listening to Mama Rosin pronounced rosin not rosin they're swiss and they do cajun and zydeco music and they're on tour at the moment with bellowhead and they're amazing oh well i did feel proud of myself now i feel
1: entirely inadequate so thanks for that trevor and uh, what's what's this all about trevor you're also looking after something called the bbc's
3: listener archive the listeners archive is a project that we're doing for the whole of the bbc asking people who listened to and recorded bbc shows years ago perhaps have them on cassettes, reel-to-reel, put them in their attic, under the spare bed. And were these were recordings that probably the BBC didn't deem important enough to keep. And so we've been sent old Noel Edmonds shows, Chris Evans shows, Chris Morris... Um, also some wonderful Kenny Everett I was just listening to this afternoon a material that was probably thought of as being a bit trivial because it was live but it really helps you I'm going to make a pompous comment here to tell the social history of the country it's not oh, yes, just yes, wallowing yes. in great
1: old uh, radio stuff so this is going to be not just for the BBC's own purposes, but will be uh, on uh, Radio 2, Radio 4 and sometime too. We're,
3: we're doing it in connection with the British Library. The first programme presented by Simon Mayo goes out next week on Radio 2, and then there's another one a couple of days after presented by Steve Lamac on Six Music, and many more to come, we hope. Oh, marvellous, marvellous. Well, uh, plug over, but we look forward to that. Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Right, well, first up, it's all about
1: This man. Okay, then back to basics Grab your
3: and your fat laces a little hand clap for some funk faces and make your body move in the following places
1: That was of course Robbie Williams whose number 1 single Candy Shock Horror has not been playlisted by Radio 1 The station's breakfast DJ Nick Grimshaw said it's not a said Williams is not ready for a Radio 1 audience anymore and wasn't relevant to 13-year-old One Direction fans uh, Peter, coming to you first, because you've already mentioned One Direction, so you clearly know about this sort of thing. Uh, was it the right move by Radio 1, do you think?
2: I think in this in this case it was. I mean, I wouldn't say with all Robbie Williams songs that they should definitely all be banned from the playlist. And Well, they, they haven't said that they have banned him from the playlist, but if you listen to this song, it sounds like nothing else on that Radio 1 playlist. It sounds like the sort of thing you'd expect to find on, on Radio 2, really. And I guess this is quite a critical point for Radio 1 where they are... Really, kind of hammering home the fact that they're supposed to be like you know, a, a young person station. So I suppose it's it's kind of good for them in a way that this is blown up because it's sending out the message that they're not playing this kind of music. It's not a very good song. It's not his best, is it? I actually really like it. Oh. Uh, I think it's um, it sounds like someone fully intending to have a massive hit record, and um,
0: you know, it's it's a, it's, no a, it's a catchy
2: song. It's no feel that is one of his best songs. Well, I'm glad we agree on that. <laughs> it's good to good to agree on that.
1: Trevor, as uh, Peter's mentioned there, Ben Cooper is, uh, is taking the station to a younger audience and, uh, and this is one
3: way of doing it. Well, I think it's exactly what we did in the 90s, you know, for Robbie Williams' 2012 uh, thing, status quo 1995. I think it sends out a message that says, hello, 15-year-old, this station is for you and possibly not for your mum and dad anymore. And I don't think, you know, as Peter's saying, it's about banning the record any more than radio 1 bans schubert it's just saying we are positioning ourselves as a station for these kind of people we're not commercial radio so we're not just playing those same you know 50 records over and over again we want to be something different but we've got to uh, make it clear that we are different and this is a convenient way of doing it and unlike when we did this in the 90s w- when we said well we're not going to play you know, Luther Vandross or the Electric Light Orchestra, there was nowhere else for those people to go because Radio 2 was still playing Mantovini and Valdunican. Well, they are playing Candy. I've heard it twice on Radio 2 in the last couple of days. So that's where those people sh- should be going. And, you know, well done Radio 1 for taking a decision they probably should have taken five years ago. Peter, do you think, uh, well, I mean, the, the point that Nick Grimshaw made about, you know, 13-year-old kids aren't interest,
1: interested in Robbie anymore, where, where is his fan base? Do you think it's entirely moved on, or do, do you know, teenagers sort of pick and choose Robbie Williams tracks like um, like Radio 1 should?
2: I think a lot of teenagers probably do like the, the Robbie single. I mean, you know, it's, you could actually imagine it going quite, down quite well to Children's Party. It has that kind of feel to it, as well as it does probably to Old People's Party, with everyone drunk off their heads, running around screaming. There's a slight kind of demented aspect to the song. I, I think with the Robbie thing, it, it's, di- it's difficult because there's no way back now. Like they, they can't kind of play a little Robbie single after that, so that's probably it for Robbie and Radio 1 now. But I think sort of moving forward, they're just going to have to take things on a case-by-case basis. So, for example, with Chris Moyles people were banging on for a long time about you know he's too old to be doing this but no one was really that bothered about the fact that Annie Mack who's their well, the big sort of dance music champion is mid-30s Zane Lowe who's their alternative music champion is late 30s and it didn't really matter because of the personalities and because you know because it just kind of worked I think it's going to be the same with music you know that they will probably find a, a reason to play the new Foo Fighters single when that comes out in spite of Dave Grohl being the other side of thirty.
1: What do you make of how the
2: the Radio One playlist has has
1: evolved? Is is this a, sort of reflected elsewhere in their choices? Do you think? Have you seen a sort of a real difference in the last year or so?
2: Really, have the last probably last three years, I guess. I mean, it seems to have been kind of heading. To, this seems to be the point that it's been heading heading towards for a while. You know, it's, it's very kind of urban, very kind of dancey, and kind of artists like DJ Fresh are kind of all over all over the station now. But it's interesting that they are also playing you know boy bands like One Direction a lot because maybe five years ago a boy band wouldn't have got a look in on Radio One. So you know they're obviously kind of looking at the at the teenage audience as, as they should do. You know what they're supposed to do. My own view is that Radio
3: One should start thinking about speech. It's very interesting to me how the younger audience seems to enjoy comedy on the television it enjoys drama it seems to like talking to one another radio one seems though to just be focusing solely on what its music policy is and i'd like it to think about how it might be able to reach that younger audience by doing more talking
1: and the last time radio one did comedy i guess was chris morrison and jam or maybe it was blue jam on the radio i
3: think the, uh... they've just commissioned a comedy haven't they I'm
2: not sure. I mean, they do. There are some kind of more speechy kind of things that they have, like on Sundays, there's a Sunday surgery, which is. Woeful Problems, which is qu- quite kind of hard to listen to. Sharon Osbourne did that once, <laughs> isn't she, years um, ago. Nominated for a Sony Rising Star That's her award. entire life, I think, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a guy called Matt Edmondson, who's one of their kind of sort of brighter talents. Who's kind of, like, It's kind of a comedy show. It's got music in it, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, it's very funny. And they've got Tom Deacon as well, who's a comedian. Um, you know, if you
3: want to listen to any kind of music now, whether it's the top 40 or it's the kind of obscure things we were just talking about, there's a stream somewhere that'll give it to you and there's, you know, your own iPod, iPad, whatever, Mm -hmm. and Spotify... You know, just defining yourself as a radio station by the records you play, I think that's beginning to look a bit old fashioned. And what you do in between them and the other creative radio ideas you have is really the direction of travel.
1: Right. Well, that's enough Robbie Williams for now, as if you can ever get enough Robbie Williams. And the new lineup was announced for ITV1's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And there was only one contestant everyone's talking about. That's right, it's Brian Connolly. Uh, No, of course it's not. It's uh, Tory MP uh, Nadine Dorries, um, who's got a hell of a lot of stick for appearing on this show when uh, people saying that instead of being in the jungle in Australia, she should be representing her constituents in the House of Commons. As if MPs ever turn up to vote in the House of Commons every time.
3: Trevor, I know you're a big I'm a Celebrity fan. Uh, have you ever been asked to be on it? I've never uh, been asked. I've never watched it, but I was just thinking I'd be very pleased if my MP was invited. He's uh, Andrew Lansley, and I think uh, his, he'd have a nice time in the jungle.
1: What did you make of the response? I thought it was a bit OTT. I mean, she's been suspended. I mean, clearly you're a big fan of the show, having never seen <laughs> it. But uh, the response from the Conservative Party of suspending her and uh, you know calling urgent meetings when she
3: returns. You know, when did, when did an MP last get 10 million viewers? Well, it deflects and flack, doesn't it? From um, other things going on uh, in the media for the coalition, like um, the arguments with um, Philip Schofield this morning, uh, yeah, unfortunate flash of a, a list of um, <clears>
1: an unfortunate flash for yeah. the
3: first time with Philip Schofield. Indeed,
1: more about that on media guardian. uk. Uh,
2: Peter, have you seen more editions of I'm a Celebrity than Trevor? Yes. Well, <laughs> in fi- I guess I could say I've seen it, a, an infinite number more. <laughs> right. I, I suppose I would have done if I'd even seen one. But uh, yes, I usually tune in. What do you make of this year's lineup? Do you want me to give you a few names? Yes. Right.
1: Well, apart from Nadine, I can't say Nadine without, without ever thinking of Twin Peaks. That's another story entirely. Other contestants include uh, Charlie Brooks from EastEnders. Right. Not quite sure who she plays or he. Uh, Eric Bristow, think former so. world, uh, who I have heard of, my era. And uh, boxing, uh, former world boxing champion David Hay. Okay. Who I think will be getting a lot of attention if it wasn't
2: for Nadine. Uh, so I uh, think quite a powerful lineup? I thought Nadine's line about if there are this many pe- million people watching it then that's where the mp should go i thought perfect of course and it's one of those arguments that immediately kind of falls down when you see an mp eating a kangaroo's bumhole. yes that
1: is true I'm, I'm not sure how often the uh, the editors will use footage of her discussing you know serious issues and, and mm-hmm. as you say how uh, how often it will be uh you know i mean the, the danger is that she becomes the new Gillian mckeith uh, and you won't Remember this, Trevor, because you didn't see it. But uh, voters just relentlessly, uh, uh, viewers voted relentlessly for her to do challenge after challenge after challenge, and she sort of, uh, I think she collapsed on air, didn't she? Eventually, she yes. couldn't take any more.
3: Didn't George Galloway do Big Brother? He did when he did the uh, li- licking up the milk and all yeah. that. I don't In think, think that leotard. did him a world of good. Did I don't think it made us think, ah, oh, yes, he's got a an interesting political rationale.
2: No. <laughs> I mean, I think <laughs> that there is an argument for politicians getting involved with popular culture and engaging with it and being seen to at least have some idea of what's going on in the real world. But I'm not sure if I'm a Celebrity is any kind of real world that any of us would like What to should they in. do, do you think? Celebrity? Is there a Celebrity Bake Off? <laughs> or,
1: uh, you know, the choir maybe? or Maybe X Factor. X Factor? Yeah. Well, we'll leave that. I wonder who? Trevor? Maybe Andrew Lansley again?
3: <laughs> I think so. Well, I think there's enough Vipers in
1: the House of Commons for them to feel at home right well uh, next up that's enough I'm a celebrity it starts on uh, ITV1 on Sunday I think the, the last one I saw uh, Kerry Katona one I think that's probably uh, that's dating me terribly talking of reality shows the battle between X Factor and Strictly Come Dancing is, appears all but over Strictly Come Dancing pulled further away from its ITV rival on Saturday. It's now 2 million viewers ahead. And there's also clear blue water between their Sunday night result show. Uh, Peter, now I'm just guessing, but you probably watch more of these shows than Trevor
2: does. In fact, I think he's heading, inching towards the door. Again, um, yes, I've seen them once or twice. I've, I mean, I, I don't watch Strictly. I do, so you I'm, do the X Factor. Well, the thing is, I like, am not. I don't watch Strictly because I'm not interested in people dancing around. But I do watch X Factor because I'm interested in pop music. And also, in it's my job to know what happens after the X Factor, because what happens on TV is like the first half of the story, and then the second half is when they start releasing records and running a mock and stuff. So the X Factor figure is just uh, it's 8 million this
1: time round, mm-hmm. down from 10 million last year, which was in turn down from 12 million the year before.
2: So this is serious stuff, it would seem. As trends go, that's not ideal. I mean, it still has a huge, it still has a huge impact, and it's, it still has a decent share as well. But I think it just needs to, it needs to either do new stuff or stop doing new stuff a lot of people want it to go back to the supposed to good old days of the kind of the dodgy hotel conference room sticky carpets unflattering lighting Sharon Osbourne throwing water over Louis Walsh at a desk and it's it's kind of it's become a bit of a caricature of itself now to the point where the the, the finalists are all they all seem to kind of fit particular roles so they it's it's almost it's almost scripted Oh heaven forbid! Yes, almost. Is it a problem that it sort of runs
1: out of stories? There are only so many. uh, I mean, every new contestant now sort of fits into a a model of a contestant you've seen before, and because they're uh, occasionally you get bands and whatever, you get duos,
2: but you don't get the relationships like you do on a show like Strictly, for instance. Yeah, perhaps, and I think I think people have kind of got wise to a lot of. The tricks i don't know if people are completely wise to all of the tricks and to how little control the judges themselves actually have about what happens and things like song choices and stuff like that they have made some concessions to sort of moving things forward this year so for example you've had someone on it singing her own songs and you have someone on it playing a guitar and also this year for the first time the artists before people have actually been chucked out because they had managers and they were found out halfway through and they kind of got booted out this year the Act, I suppose, that uh, they'd be wanting people who are a lot more polished before they go in, but I don't you know, Obviously, hasn't done much for the viewing figures. Is it all about the absence of Simon Cowell? Do you think that would sort of cure everything at a stroke, or does it run deeper than that? I think if Simon knows what's good for the brand, he'll be back next year. I think that you know,
3: the water cooler moment of five, seven years ago was going to be, um, you know. A pop idol, or it was going to be an X Factor. I think that those shows came out of nowhere and were huge, and now they've just had their day. And in, in a way, rather like I don't know, Opportunity Knocks, or Thank You Lucky Stars, or whatever. Those you know shows have got a life, haven't they? They come and they gradually go, and unless you refresh them, which they clearly are not doing enough.
1: Opportunity Knox, hosted by Les Dawson. That, that was that was the, those are the days. <laughs> those are the days of an entirely other show. Right, <laughs> you're right. Yes, yeah, I can never work out they're good old days. I can never quite good work out. Day. But uh, you <laughs> know, they're in the audience, but they're dressed up. And uh, but then the Muppets used to throw me because I thought they were I thought they were genuine audience members. I, I don't think anyway. they were puppets, weren't they? Were they puppets? I think oh, probably. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, Trevor, I, with the last topic, I think we're returning to safer Dan ground here. It's radio. Oh yes, I yeah, heard. where I believe you work. Uh, Well, TalkSport have bagged the rights to next year's Lions tour to Australia, now traditionally broadcast by the
3: BBC, of course. How much of this is a blow to Five Live? Well, it's a a blow because um, they want to keep everything, quite rightly, but they know they can't, and I think they know they shouldn't. If you talk to Adrian or Jono, they would say, we've we've planned for this uh, because we know that TalkSport should and will uh, take more live commentary. Radio 5 Live cannot simply broadcast everything anyway, because even with 5 Live Sports Extra, it's often, you know, with just the two channels, unless it's doing the Olympics, it can't do everything. I think it's very healthy, and I think that 5 Live, if they look at themselves carefully, will recognise that some of the ways in which they do commentary might need to be freshened up. I'm not sure, in fact, that Sport have pushed the envelope far enough. I think there's more that you could do, Than just two blokes talking to each other Whilst watching a match There might be more ideas out there I don't know what they are But no, I think it's very good And and the more competition the BBC has In sport radio, the better And we're talking about radio And next
1: week it's the uh, radio festival In Salford, of course Billy Bragg's delivering the second uh, John Peel lecture That'll be very interesting uh, last year it was um, Pete Townsend, wasn't it? Which wasn't very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Went on longer than a guitar, <laughs> one of his guitar sailors, yeah. And, uh, but give us one highlight you're looking forward to. Uh,
3: I'm looking forward to Richard Park who has not appeared at the radio festival for a very long time. Um, For some years when I was running it, would not come. And now he is coming. And I'd be very very interested to hear what he's got to say. Global Radio pretty much run commercial radio now. They own almost all of it, apart from the stations owned by Bauer. And they've got a vision for what it is, which is it's not really local anymore. They want to uh, amalgamate all the stations, consolidate into Networks, Capital, Heart, um, possibly only those two, uh, although they've got a few more at the moment. Working out from Richard, who is a, you know, he's a genius. You know, he's, he's never really put a foot wrong in radio in terms of making money. Hearing where he thinks the industry's going I think would be fascinating. I think some of the rest of it is a bit too much of an advert for radio and not enough of a debate about radio. I, I like the fact that when you go to Edinburgh for the television conference... You feel you're with a mature industry that recognises that there will be different points of view. And so they have argument and debate and discussion about the direction of travel for the industry. The radio festival is in danger, I think, of becoming a little bit too worried about airing its dirty linen in public and so it's saying yes we'll invite people to tell us what they think so here's the man from twitter the man from spotify the other Uh, but we what we don't want is to have a debate about oh is DAB a good thing or should we do more speech radio I, I wish they did a little bit more of that is DAB a good thing? That's a question you can't ask enough. It's got to be debated, you know. We can shy away from it, but
1: what's your view, John? Oh, stop it. <laughs> what I'm really interested in, because you mentioned Global Radio there, Peter, is um, what Capital is now a, a national network. What, what have you made uh, with what um, Ashley Tabor and Richard Park have done with Capital, uh, uh, apart from uh, playing lots of The Wanted? presumably.
2: Well that's the from my point of view as a music journalist, as a pop fan that's one of the more interesting things about what they've done with Global is that they've as a different, as part of a different division of it, they've started manufacturing and launching bands who then get quite a lot of coverage you know across the whole network which as you say is a a massive network and outside of Psycho and the X Factor that's one of the, the, the few kind of models that people anyone's cracked in the last few years there's a successful kind of proven way of being able to launch an act which on, on one hand, seems a bit dodgy, and on the other hand, you know, any port in a storm, really.
1: And the, and the, the sort of music they play, I mean, it's a very um, high rotation, as it Of, of, of compa- When you compare, we're going back to Radio 1 a bit now, but this really kind of puts clear blue water between what Ben Cooper's trying to do at Radio 1 and his music team, and what, you know, ASCII Table is very, well, it would appear, um, if you look at the uh, audience
2: figures, you know, fairly successfully doing it at Capital. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a far smaller playlist and there are far fewer kind of spot plays for, for DJs on on the station. I, I I like listening to Capital, but after about an hour and a half, you've kind of heard what you're going to hear that day, so you can get, go over somewhere else. Well, also this week it was
1: the Guardian's annual Student Media Awards. And you can get full details at the uh, of all the winners at the Media Guardian website, of course, and we also put a link up to that on the blog. But uh, our colleague Josh Halliday grabbed a bottle of Peroni and caught up with Cat. Bannon, editor of Publication of the Year, Newcastle University's The Courier. Congratulations Kat, Uh, well done, how do you feel?
4: Absolutely ecstatic, like didn't expect it at all, it's just testament to all the hard work that so many people have put into The Courier.
1: There's a lot of doom mongering isn't there about newspapers and the future of print in general at the minute. Why is it that you are passionate about The Courier as a newspaper rather than a website or something more snazzy and digital?
4: Well, it's the nature of Newcastle, to be honest, it's the nature of Newcastle students in general that, you know, they want something to pick up, they expect that the courier is going to be there when they go to the library, when they go to a lecture, you know, it's, it's a communication leaflet as well as anything else, and obviously we're going to deliver front page, hard hitting front page news stories, but at the same time, they want something to enjoy, and that's what I think we want to produce with the courier.
1: And you had quite a funny way into being the editor of your newspaper, (laughs) didn't you? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Well, effectively, I was default editor because um, Simon Murphy, who won News Reporter reporter of the Year last year, ironically, at the Garden Shoot Media Awards, he had to um, bow down at the fact that he had... An absolutely amazing offer from The Guardian for the Scott Trust Bursary to do an MA in City of London, so by effect I was the anomaly. I'm so happy to just kind of make my mark at the same time, not just for being a default editor.
1: (laughs) Kat, congratulations on a fantastic year. Well done. I'm joined now by Dan Saber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Technology. Dan, thanks for coming along. Um, regular listeners, I'm sure that includes Dan uh, Will know that we have a weekly Media Monkey quiz Except uh, in a change to the normal schedule That's because it's just me and Dan This week it's Media Monkey Mastermind
5: oh, I'm feeling a bit unsure about this I feel it's been dropped on me at the last minute Well, more accurately about three minutes ago over tea But anyway You're going right to yeah, okay. love it You're uh, going to love it
1: Okay, so question number one Savile scandal aside Why has it been a taxing week for the BBC?
5: a taxing oh ah, this is all about of course the bbc's had to change its policy about the way it, uh, the tax treatment of stars because uh, over the last few years it's been telling them to go off and sort of set up these sort of personal service companies so if you're fiona bruce you have paradox productions limited or fiona bruce limited or something jeremy paxman or chris moyles or richard hammond or any one of these folks and they've all got their own company and the bbc pays them gross into the company and perhaps we don't know because as tax fares matter for the for the stars themselves perhaps that can be used to pay a bit less tax and that these days is a bad thing
1: one, one point. I mean, Zarin Patel said that these these personal what are they called personal service companies. Um, that's it. And she said, and I quote, "They give rise to public perception that individuals use these to avoid tax." Well, it's 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 a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, the the public perception. I mean, do they help you avoid tax or not? Presumably they do. Else, people wouldn't bother doing them.
5: Yeah, I'll say. Look, I think that's right. And obviously, we're not thinking about any specific celebrities who so all, of course, pay the correct amount of tax. Uh, uh, the problem is, it's the same Zarin Patel whose BBC. You uh, know, uh, two or three years ago, is basically saying to all the stars, you can't be self-employed, you've got to set up one of these companies. You know, and, and look, let's be clear, an awful lot of the big names at the BBC, I mean, they may, you may think they're on television all the time, but in fact, you know, they might only be there once a week or once a month or, you know, just just a lot less often, and therefore BBC employs them on a sort of contracted basis or a self-employed basis, perfect reasonable for managing its costs and so forth. But it's when you sort of, when the Beeb's starting to say to people, set up your own company, that just seems to be taking it a bit further.
1: And so some of these people who are regarded as the face or the voice of the BBC, they're going to have to become BBC staff members. But there was a line in the report saying, well, unless they really want to keep their personal service company, then they can. So you sort of wonder how this moves things on.
5: Well, I think – so what the Beeb did is it got, you know, Deloitte, the sort of exhausting bean counters into just have a look at some of these contracts. And what it concluded was, as you say, some people who you and I and our listeners would think were the face and voice of the BBC – were, you know, employed via these personal service companies and really should be actually on staff jobs because they were on telly that much, you know, they're on telly so much that they, you know, pretty much turning turning up to work at TVC or New Broadcasting House every day. So, you know, there's a bit more than just a sort of perception issue. I think, you know, some people were getting quite generous sort of employment arrangements here.
1: Okay. Question number two. Who's the new man in charge of Channel 5?
5: Oh, that is Paul Dunthorne. Oh, Very good. Uh, And I've got to be careful for uh, our listeners here at uh, Richard Desmond's Northern Shell Empire, because they get twitchy about this. But, of course, he has been running and in charge of Portland Television, which is uh, Richard Desmond's adult channels. We shall euphemistically call them for a moment until somebody uses the P word. Adult channels, And he's been running that for a long time, years and years, I think. I can't remember how many. Anyway, he's now going to be chief... Operating officer, Channel 5, uh, the top dog reporting to Paul Ashford, who's Richard Desmond's editorial director, and whilst keeping his job over at Portland. So, step by step, the inevitable happens, which is uh, the adult TV business and the uh, public service TV business have the same management. So,
1: this is partly a result of uh, Jeff Ford's uh, imminent departure. Uh, from five but they're going to bring someone else in to sort of look after the creative side of the business but that'll he'll or she will presumably be on a, uh, a sort of a less of a senior position than, than Jeff Ford had
5: uh, I think that's right a chief creative officer they're looking for you know a show picker uh, I don't know if they reports report to Dunthall or not but Dunthall seems to be the sort of ranking executive that's, that seems to be the message coming out
1: ok question number three which newspaper group surprised investors by upgrading its full year profit forecast
5: Trinity Mirror now it said in November that print advertising was going to be not down by maybe 9% like people thought but maybe just like a few percentage points. Hooray! Which the market quite liked because, you know, less bad than expected. Maybe there's a bit of a... not exactly a pre-Christmas bounce, but a pre-Christmas... Uh, enthusiasm, greater enthusiasm amongst retailers who really haven't been spending a lot of money. It's a bit too soon to talk about a rebirth of print. But I, I think this is pointing the way to the beginnings of sort of wider economic recovery, which in turn means good news for print advertising. The one other thing to say, though, is that digital revenues at Mirror were down by, uh, by 1% in, uh, in the sort of summer trading period. And, I mean, it just goes to show that um, digital is not always up. And that is a disquieting number for for, for Trinity Mirror, who really would be wanting to do better.
1: Okay, and finally, question number four. Is Pearson going to sell the Financial Times?
5: Yes, no. I meant no. Maybe. <laughs> ah, ah. So Bloomberg put out a you know, Bloomberg, very serious, you know, American Wire organization, very serious sourcing policy, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven sources will do. And they put out this report suggesting that, you know, Pierce was going to explore a private sale for the FT, no bankers engaged, you know, listen to offers, billionaires, roll up, roll up. And that came out at, oh, it's half seven-ish London time uh, on US Election Day, and maybe um, they wanted... um, Mr. Barber and the uh, other folks at the FT to concentrate on reporting on that, because within an hour Pearson sort of broke habit of a lifetime and issued an on-the-record statement saying this particular Bloomberg story is wrong. Now, maybe if you really want to read the text really hard, say this particular Bloomberg story may be uh, some slightly different... Set of facts would suggest that maybe that you know Pearson might be looking at it, but I think on balance, there's a pretty emphatic denial. the The bankers were saying, bankers are saying, look, you know, we hear no set, there's no activity from the buy side suggests there's some kind of informal auction. And why would Dame Marjorie do it, it as a very last thing at Pearson to to sell a newspaper? She said she said over a dead body or a or the FT Group, which is the group in which it's housed. So I think. You know, we should probably leave it there. And yet, there have been a couple of these reports sort of floating around, coming, it seems, more out of New York than London. And it just makes me think that somebody's talking, is somebody talking above their pay grade? Is somebody trying to make something happen when it's not happening? I don't know. But, you know, new boss at Pearson, Marjorie Scardino is replaced by John Fallon. And, you know, Penguin's been put in this joint venture with Random House. So maybe the FT's just a little bit more exposed.
1: Dan, well, thanks very much. I think uh, inaugural uh, Mastermind, four out of four and no passes, I think. if uh, Well,
5: you tailored the questions for me, but I was I wouldn't, wouldn't be lying if I wasn't just a little bit worried beforehand. <laughs>
1: well, next week, general knowledge. Uh, Dan Saber, thanks very much. <laughs> now, hit Scandinavian drama The Killing is back for a third series on BBC4. That's on Saturday week, or if you're listening to this after the weekend, it's on Saturday. The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Vicky Frost, caught up with its star, Sophie Grobbel, after the preview screening in Denmark. She began by asking, what was her favourite Sarah Lund moment so far?
0: I'm very, very happy about the scene in the first season, the very last episode, where she's in the police car. Oh yeah. yeah. And she holds, steals a gun yeah. from one of her colleagues and takes the car. I like that moment a lot, Um, and actually there are a few moments in this third season. We start her out in a different place, and she will be put in situations that are new to her, and shakes her up a bit, Yeah, which is not really that hard, she's pretty hard to make feel uncomfortable, isn't she? (laughs) It's not just like slipping into the old jumper and there it all is. And it shouldn't be, really. Actually, my my biggest fear was, and I think our writer feels the same way, our biggest fear has been to get into a routine. We don't want that. We're very ambitious about keeping ourselves creatively awake and not, you know, just reproduce ourselves. For me, it's just one long story. Series, season one, two, and three is really one long journey for Sarah Lund. And when we left her in the second season, she was uh, at an absolute um, low point. I mean, she'd lost, in my view, she'd lost everything. She'd lost her illusions, she's lost she'd lost her belief in the system, belief in a person she trusted who mm-hmm. deceived her. She'd lost everything. So when we started having meetings about this third and last season, we discussed a lot. Well, what has that done to her? Mm-hmm. It has been much more emotional for me to have my last day of shooting than I imagined it would be, because I'm a very um, pragmatic, realistic person. Actually, these past three months of shooting has been so hectic, so busy, so last minute, that there hasn't really been time to reflect on how it would be to end it. So when I had my last day of shooting last Monday, uh, which was also a very, very intense day for me. I had three big key scenes yeah. for the last episode. So it was a very, very busy, intense day with a lot of new lines to learn coming along the way. And so it was like being in this hurricane. And suddenly it was over and you say goodbye to everyone. I went out in the parking lot right outside, outside this building. And I got in my car and I slammed the door. And then I just broke totally down. Oh. So it hit me like um, I just wasn't, I wasn't really prepared for, for how, uh, how much I'm going to miss it. But yeah, yeah it is yeah. dawning on me.
1: That was Vicky Frost talking to Sophie Grobble. I hope I've pronounced that right. I think it is Frost. Yeah. Anyway, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Vicky Frost, the Guardian's TV and radio editor.
4: Hello.
6: Good I'm day. S- I'm still laughing at your joke.
1: Oh, thank you very much. From last week, it was that funny.
6: <laughs> Call the medics.
1: Uh, well, now, of course, the killing. The killing three.
6: Yeah. Coming back. Yeah. Returns. On BBC4 yeah so you should they should employ you to do the trails work, I would think, uh yes, back on BBC for uh, a week on Saturday it's kind of I, I've seen the first two episodes, haven't seen any further than that, and from what I see, it's a bit of a return to that kind of the first series that people did much prefer to the second series, so uh but it is the final installment. that's it. there is no more after this.
1: It's probably a good thing. End on a high, we hope.
6: Yeah, I think it is a good thing, actually. Um, I mean, in a way, it feels a bit of a shame to leave a character who uh, is obviously such a brilliant character and not get more from her. But actually, they've kind of wrung an awful lot from her already. And if you think kind of that first series was, of course, 20 hours. And, brilliant and first series. Yeah, yeah, brilliant first series. Awful
1: second series. It wasn't
6: awful. I don't think it was awful, actually. And I think the reason it wasn't awful was because of Sarah Lund. She kind of, you know, even though the plot was a bit bonkers and, you know, that bit when they went to Afghanistan, sorry, spoilers, but it was on a long time ago now, uh, was absolutely mental. Uh, the fact that Sarah Lund was such a good character, I think, sort of carried it through, despite all of that. Uh, but hopefully... We won't be so reliant on that being the case for the third season.
1: Give us a clue, no spoilers, of course, uh, but give us a little uh, insight, a taste, uh, a sneaky preview of, of, of the first two episodes of the, of the last series.
6: Well, I'm really, actually, I really don't want to because there's so little I can say. Get out. Without giving you a spoiler. And that's the last thing I'd want to do because there is a really good twist at the end of the first episode. So it's kind of like I can't even, you know what I mean? I just can't really
1: describe the jumper.
6: And then, so there's actually, you know, like in the in the second series, we had that pre-jumper jumper. jumper. We're in that same situation again. So we have her chevron jumper to begin with, where she's sort of really out of police mode, and she's really chatty, and she's like having dinners rather than just eating from the pan. And you know, it's like she's like a normal person, effectively. It's amazing. Um, And then, of course, there is a proper lund jumper for when. uh, She actually gets uh, back into detecting. And it's quite like the one from the first series, but navy. Oh, nice. Uh, And also available widely across the high street. It seems everybody is wearing those jumpers. Uh, So presumably everyone will be staying in on Saturday night, very hot, boiling hot in those jumpers and pretending to be Sarah Lund.
1: Well, it's not uh, not the only big new uh, eagerly anticipated drama uh, on our screens or that one's coming up soon, of course. This week, Channel 4 unveiled Secret State.
6: Yeah. So Channel 4, this is sort of Channel 4 sort of seems to be having a bit of a push on drama at the moment. And so we have Secret State, which is a four-parter starring Gabriel Byrne as Deputy Prime Minister Tom Dawkins. It's based very loosely, very loosely, I should underline, on uh, Chris Mullins' novel A Very British Coon,
1: Which was made into a drama, brilliant 80s drama with Ray McAnally.
6: Exactly. Uh, Great man. This is not a remake of that. It is a sort of a different thing. And I feel slightly lukewarm about it, actually. It's kind of got all the ingredients I should really like. It's political drama. There are spooks There's a campaigning journalist. You know, it's got a great cast. It's also, actually, it's written by Robert Jones, who wrote Murder, which was on BBC Two quite recently, which was a brilliant, brilliant piece of telly. So I had really high expectations, uh, but actually... I don't know whether it's because it's a four-parter, but um, it felt the first episode for me. They were trying to cover so much ground; it was all a bit clunky. There was an awful lot of exposition. You know, there was that kind of moments like when there was the next. The, when they were showing you the explosion that's not a spoiler it's kind of I know you haven't seen it yet John but you know the, it's that's kind of central to the beginning of the show there's an explosion there's an explosion and they show it to you on telly and they've kind of got the ticker on the bottom with the headline and it's kind of spelling out the plot basically you know there's been an explosion in this factory some Just- <laughs> people are injured it's a bit like oh god it's like stage directions on the telly here and I felt things were really a bit signposted and I kind of knew what was going on and. Actually, I thought the script wasn't great and I don't know whether that's because they're trying to do an awful lot tell a very complex story very quickly and that we'll just see that sort itself out in sort of coming episodes or not. I mean, I think Gabriel Byrne's character is quite interesting as this deputy prime minister who's kind of slightly removed from politics and wants to do the right thing and presumably we'll see that character develop and I'm quite interested to see that more. I just... Don't really love, you know, the fact that the the journalist kind of pops up to help explain bits of storyline, and I can see all the wheels turning a little bit, which is slightly disappointing.
1: Yeah, and the ratings are about as lukewarm as your review, only one point two million, which is um, kind of disappointing.
6: I'm surprised though, because the trailers look great, and 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 I was really looking forward to it. But then, you know, Channel Four haven't really been doing that much drama. I mean, I know they've had. Top Boy, and I know if they've had this is England, but actually, you know, on a grand scale, they haven't been putting out that much drama. So it's not necessarily where you expect to see great British drama anymore. Perhaps, and you know, particularly with the BBC and ITV pushing on it more, so perhaps that's why.
1: Well, there's another uh, new Channel Four drama. In fact, it's a, it's a film, isn't it, with uh, with John Sim?
6: Yes, that's right. It's a Michael Winterbottom film called Everyday. That's been five years in the making, and I'm, I'm pleased to say that actually, I think this is a really great. Thing uh, so well done to Channel Four here, I think. Um, it's called Every Day. It stars John Sim and Shirley Henderson, and then a family of children who who are astonishing, which are sort of. Well, I'll explain as we go, I suppose. It's about a family and the husband, the father, goes to prison. And then it's just about the life of that family and how his life passes and their life passes and how they deal with that and how they deal with visiting him. And the effects, effectively, of prison on a family as well as on a person, which in itself, I think, is an interesting premise to take. But then the way uh, Winterbottom has approached it is great. and he's So he's found a family of siblings it's all filmed in their house actually where they actually live so it's very real and they're sort of rehearsed a bit and then off they you know then off they go and they're all great you wouldn't believe they sort of weren't trained and it took
1: 5 years to make
6: Yeah, because we see the kids actually getting older in the film. I think that's one of the things that makes it such a brilliant watch, actually. And the way they interact with each other because they're a proper family is also, it makes it more interesting. So all those things that you don't need to create and that's such a problem when you see films where children don't age and don't really interact properly are all overcome sort of in one kind of bound, if you like. And so they just went back and filmed little bits with them every now and then and then you get this sort of very beautiful tale over a period of time and all the countryside in it is really beautifully made. So, you know, you have this real grimness of the prison kind of really juxtaposed with these beautiful, beautiful landscapes. Um, and it's it's brilliant to watch. You know, John Sim is, as ever, great. Shirley Henderson is, as ever, great. The kids are brilliant. It's doing something really interesting. It makes you think differently. Really great bit of scheduling from Channel Four.
5: It
1: must be strange seeing the kids grow up uh, in sort of almost in, in you know, over the course of a two-hour, presumably two-hourish drama. Because uh, it's a bit like it's like Seven Up, but it's a but it's a drama, you know. And it's, uh, you must think, <laughs> oh, this, this camera trickery or the, the makeup on these children is amazing. They just they literally look five years older, but of course they are. But you wouldn't necessarily know how they made it.
6: I think actually, weirdly. You don't think that whereas like you would do in a lot of things where people are made to look older. I think because it's such a gradual thing and you're seeing the change of the seasons in the film as well, that it almost sort of creeps up on you so that by the end you think, Yeah, yeah, these kids are five years older actually and you know, their dad not being there for five years has had this effect and that effect and so on. You kind of get it, but it doesn't feel as forced as you think it might do actually.
1: So what's it called and when's it
6: on? It's every day. Not as in on every day. It's called Every Day, and it's on Thursday on Channel 4.
1: Vicky Frost, as ever. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. My thanks to all our guests, Dan Saber, Vicky Frost, Trevor Dan, and to Peter Robinson. Catch up with all things pop at popjustice.com. You can leave your comments on this week's show on our Facebook wall or our blog. Next week, we'll be coming to you live, well, live-ish, from the Radio Festival in Salford. Media Talk was produced by Matt Hill. Thanks for listening.
0: For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. The
6: Guardian
1: Masterclasses are now accessible as video downloads and streams. For our podcast listeners, we have a special offer on the great science writer Tim Radford's masterclass. Normally £3 to stream or £5 to download. We are offering 10% off, and all you have to do is use our podcast listeners' discount code. SCIENCESAVE,
5: all one word. And check out all our Guardian masterclasses at guardian.co.uk.